This is Shine On, the health and happiness show, with new episodes every week on how to live well. Shine On is heard all over the world as a podcast, but it's heard first on the radio in New York's Hudson Valley. It's Casey. Thanks so much for tuning in to Shine On as we get ready to spend some time with family or not. Over the holidays, I want you to meet Ed Hajim, H-A-J-I-M. He's not really sure if he's Syrian or Iranian. His father never made that clear, never wanted him to have an accent, wanted him to be an American. And it's an unlikely story, but Ed does grow up to be an American success story, working at firms like E.F. Hutton and Lehman Brothers, being awarded the Horatio Alger Award in 2015, Having shoveled his fair share of snow in New York and Connecticut, Ed is now in sunny Florida, enjoying the success of his first, but not last, book. The book is called On the Road Less Traveled, An Unlikely Journey from the Orphanage to the Boardroom. It is filled with drama and wisdom and life lessons. So if you have an unreliable family or no family or find yourself alone for the holidays for whatever reason, listen to Ed's story and see if you can't make the best of it. One of the driving messages in the book is that education was Ed's key to personal and financial freedom. What else does he want you to know? I want them to know that this is directed mainly at almost everybody, but that anything is possible and that education is the solution to almost everything. You know, I basically had no parents. My father was at sea most of the time. My mother was supposedly dead if she wasn't dead. And, you know, I trans, I trans, I trans, I went, I went through the system and came out the other end being able to give the largest gift in the history of the University of Rochester, which is a, you know, $4 billion institution. And it, it, that kind of story I want to get across to people. And there's as much or more opportunity today than it was when I was at trial. Okay. So that's sort of the mentality. And, and I also want people that, that have difficulty, that are brought up in orphanages and in foster homes or in difficult homes, that basically in some respects they, they have advantages which can be turned in, disadvantages, pardon me, that can be turned into advantages over time. What happened to your parents that they had to give you up? Do you know? Well, well in, when my, my father and mother got married in 1933 and proceeded to California. My father was a very difficult character, and he's 15 years older than my mother. He was, uh, he was sort of a, if you read Leon Uris, he was Abraham. You know, he treated women just like they were part of, you know, servants in the house. And she was a very young woman. I was born in 36, and he was having trouble getting a job. It was the Depression. And uh, by 39, they were, you know, basically, she decided she was going to get divorced, which was very powerful. A woman was only 24 years old in 1939. She asked for divorce. Uh, he didn't show up at the ceremony. She got custody of me. And basically, uh, he got uh, $5 a, a week of alimony and uh, child support and visiting rights only on Sunday. Well, I was living in Los Angeles. She took me to Los, back to St. Louis, where her family was. And she was very unwelcome there because she had four siblings. And it was a difficult time. And, and her father didn't need another two miles to feed. Anyway, my father showed up on the first Sunday, drove 1,800 miles from Los Angeles to St. Louis, saw me, decided that he couldn't live without me. Instead of taking me to the movies or to the park, basically got on Highway 66. And if you look at the 
the front of the book, you'll see us on Highway 66, and took me to Los Angeles, called my mother and told her not to look for us, and subsequently told me that she had passed away. And I believe that she was dead for 57 years, and that's, another, that's toward the end of the book. And I found her again when she was 81 years old, and I hadn't seen her for 57 years. So they separated, and then my father, who was a merchant marine aboard a ship, basically had trouble taking care of me because his job was at sea. And when the war started in 1941, he gave me up to the Catholic welfare agencies in Los Angeles. And I didn't see him for the entire time in the war. And then after the war, he flew me back to, uh, to New York alone at age 10. And we spent a year together, but he basically couldn't find land-based work, had to go back to sea, and then ended up, I ended up in two orphanages. Okay. So that, that's, the, that's the saga or the story. As I tell people, it's not my fault. It just happened to happen to me. <laughs> wow. Oh, my goodness. And then you went on to Harvard, right? Yeah, yeah. I went to the University of Rochester, the United States Navy, engineering at Hercules in Wilmington, and then the Harvard Business School, yes. What was it in you with all of this chaos in your life, and not only chaos, heartbreak and betrayal and really difficult odds? What was oh, it and, in and, you? And the first foster home was terrible, too. I believe it. I, <laughs> Cold I mean, and abusive. <laughs> I, I'm sure, I'm sure it, you know, in that day and age, especially, it's not that orphanages were ever um, hospitable or, or luxurious, I should say. No, they were. They were basically they took people on for the money, basically, and you know, they, and, and they didn't have the capability in the social system. The social worker actually took care of me was pretty, pretty attentive, but she couldn't, you know, she couldn't handle. It. I had so many problems at that point in time. The system has changed quite a bit since then. What was it in you, and was it born in you, or did you find it along the way that gave you the strength to keep moving forward to create a wonderful life? I put life in four parts: self, family, work and community, which is giving back. Self is the most important thing early in life. And self is a combination of genes and experiences. I guess I had some, I had some pretty good genes in that I was very, I was good in math and good in science and so on. And I, and I, but basically the environment I was in, it, the foster homes were not terrific except for the last one, but I was put in a Catholic school system. And if you've been in the Catholic school system, the nuns make it very clear that if you work hard and you're a good person, you end up in the right place. And if you do, don't work hard and you don't do the right things, you end up in that other place. So I start off with the nuns. That's one thing. That, that starts you starts in the right direction. They, they give you the, the, you know, the, 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 the golden rule, and then they throw in the Ten Commandments, too. So you get that basically at school. Then on Saturday afternoon, you go to the movies, and you find out. That was the big thing in those days, Saturday afternoon movies. And they're the heroes on the screen. You know, they always did the right thing, and so they pick, I picked up from them as well. And then, a, a, I guess, a little bit of luck and, and some genes. I was, a, a, I was not a great student in, in grammar school. The nuns basically said, He's, he seems like a smart young man, but he has so mischievous, we can't tell, because I always used to get in a, a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those are kind of the foundation parts of the situation, and I, I always felt that, I, my, and my father was the third part. Although he abandoned me from, you know, if you look at it from the outside, he never gave up saying I was terrific. I was a great person. I was going to do well. So everybody needs someone like that in their corner. And his, in his letters, in his calls, in his telegrams, and when he was with me, he always made it clear. That I, in fact, I wrote a letter, it's in the book, that basically said, look, 
that I'm not, I'm not always a good boy. I'm sometimes a bad boy. He would never let me be a bad boy with always somebody else's fault. And so, so those three things, and, and I think that one of the things that I've found, mentoring is very important. I'm involved with a mentoring group up in Boston now that handles foster kids. You've got to have somebody to talk to regularly or someone who's supporting you or someone gives you un, what I call unconditional love. And my father did give me, he couldn't do without me, he, but he couldn't handle me because, you know, he had a job which was basically took him to sea. And he was taken to sea for six, to, six months to nine months. And so he, he had a, a difficult experience. It was a difficult job as well for the kind of person he was. So those three things are basically, I think, and by the way, writing the book made me focus on why I was able to get through it. And I pass that on to the young people as well. And you can separate out that your father influenced you positively, even though he took you away from your mother? Took me away from my mother and also abandoned me. Abandoned me three times in my life. First, at, 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 age, at age six or five when the war started. Then he abandoned me again at age uh, 11 when he had to go back to sea and put me in orphanages. And then at age 15, he totally disappeared. I was, I was in the orphanage, and I was, I was aging out of the first orphanage, and I had to go to the second orphanage, and he basically disappeared completely, and I became a ward of the state. But he never, ever failed to support me and to tell me that I was very respectful. Hmm. And you can forgive him. I did. In fact, the second ghostwriter wanted me to hate my father. She thought that made a much more dramatic story, but I didn't. I loved him to the end. Right. And even though later on in life we got to be, we got very difficult because when I got to be a, you know, I got into the, when I left the navy he disagreed when I went to engineering you know he said okay then when I left engineering to go have a business school he disagreed and the worst thing of all when I married my wife he disagreed with me marrying her because I didn't know at the time but she reminded me he she reminded him of my mother uh-huh. <laughs> very he rejected her completely for a while and finally over time. They, they came to a you know peaceful coexistence, but he never really accepted her, okay. and that was bad because she was a, she's a very very fine person and and you know loving and so forth, and, and she did everything in, the, in her power to to help him. But kind of toward the end, that you know they made peace, but it was a tough one for me. So that so when I needed him, he was there, and that was when I was a young young person. And I'm amazed you're a beautiful creature that you don't hold a grudge that he took you away or told you that your mom had had died. But, died, yeah. But as long as he is, someone in your world is telling you you're going to do great things. That's what you're telling us here. That that was the support. Also, in writing the book, I realized you have to put you have to put yourself in someone else's sandals. You know, mm-hmm. here's a man. That it came over on the boat in you know in nineteen in two, two, 1900, you know then and started as an immigrant was very enthusiastic about radio and in the twenties made a lot of money became very successful had an airplane had buildings he had uh, he wasn't married but everything else and in three years he lost everything oh, everything right. that that you know you then you get demons you have to forgive someone he lost his mother at the time too and he was very close to his mother not so close to his father. And she was a, patri- a matriarch of the community, and he lost her. And then he, you know, he basically broke. He said I, he had to, he had his car and a box of cigars, and he said I either had to commit suicide or drive to California. And thank God for me, he drove to California. But you know, then he had, had a marriage that didn't work. I mean, so that those kinds of demons, you've got to forgive someone for. And having been a businessman, and I've dealt with people like that who have had you know lost money and so forth. It's very difficult to recover. So he, I had to forgive him. I mean, I've been very lucky in my life. I didn't 
have those kinds of setbacks. But he had some very serious setbacks, and you know, and nothing really worked for him in all his life. So I figured, you know, you got to forgive him for that. Right. And those demons that, that you have when you lose everything, you know, you fall from great heights. It's just very hard to recover. So we have people listening now who are preparing to go home for the Thanksgiving holiday, and maybe there are some who don't have a home to go to or aren't happy with the family that they're going home to or maybe don't feel at home with the people they're going home to. What do we say to people who don't have a great home life or don't have someone to celebrate the holidays with? I, I can use my own experience because I, I had no place to go for the entire four years I was at college. And one thing about the orphanage, it, you know, it wasn't very pleasant, but it did give you community consistency. You know, you were part of something. But once I went to college, you know, it uh, it basically I, I was alone. And so I give you, I'll give you three things that that happened to me, which were very positive. If you had a roommate or a friend or so forth that took you home for the holidays to his his home, and I had a couple of very good friends of mine that took me to their houses in places like Ocean City, New Jersey, and, and uh, mainline Philadelphia. And I didn't spend the whole holiday with them, but I spent part of the holiday with them. And although it was difficult for me because I saw the, the happy family and I didn't have such a family, it's still, you know, part of that, that, that experience was good. I mean, it was good for me. And you got away and you saw people and you had a good time and so forth. The second thing is to team up with somebody else with no family and do an adventure. You know, if you're, let's say you're going to the University of Rochester, as I did, you, you, know, have, you have a week off or a few days off. You don't, in those days, there's no money. You get on a bus or a train or someplace and go someplace and have an adventure with that other person. And I did that as well. The third thing, which I highly recommend to people that don't have a, usually those people also have financial difficulties. I loved, and it's a, you're shocked at this, I loved working during the holidays. I, I worked in the post office, you know, and, and there you have community. You have a whole bunch of other people that need the money. You know, it's, it's a holiday time, but you're all together in the problem. And when work is over, you go out and you have a beer or you sit and talk or whatever else. And, you know, uh, a post office was fun. In fact, one of the great jobs I had, which was, you know, you might say was very sad, was waiting on tables at New Year's Eve. Everybody's having a good time and you're waiting on tables. Well, when everybody was done having a good time and it's early, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning, you and the rest of the kids went out and had a good time. And it was kind of an experience that you were dealing with people who were just like you, had to work New Year's Eve and so forth. So I, all found, I found working during holidays, and I worked every holiday, in either at a, at a hamburger joint or in the, in the post office or other work I could get. And you made some pretty good damn money. When you made money, you know, New Year's Eve, you made very good money, relatively speaking, because nobody wanted the job. So I just said, get someone to take you home. You know, if you have to hint a little bit, hint a little bit. Team up with somebody else, have an adventure, which, you know, after you have, a, you have an adventure with someone else, you get, get close to money, but you also see something that nobody else has. I mean, there's a difference. You, know, you go home, you have a wonderful holiday dinner, you meet all the family. But if a guy comes back and says, I went to, you know, Canada, or I went to Mexico or something else, you've got your own something that they didn't have. And so you have something to talk about. And working, I find working in holidays is, is for me, was really good. Because I, I needed the money, so it made, it made a difference. And you know, I met a lot of people that were in the same situation as I was. Do you have children of your own? I have three children and eight grandchildren, seven boys. Oh seven my grandsons. goodness, seven <laughs> yeah, <right>. men. <laughs> and what, yeah. Do yeah. They, yeah, we, what do they think of your story? 
Well, they, that was one of the reasons I had to write it, because when I was in my 70s, when I graduated high school, I decided I would bury my story. I didn't want any sympathy. I didn't want any advantage of being an orphan. So when I went to college, I buried my story. People would ask me about my background. I said, well, my mother died when I was three. My father's a merchant marine. We live in a post office box in San Francisco. End of story. So I buried it for 50, 60, 60 years. When I became the chairman of the board of the University of Rochester, they started to put pressure on me. They wanted to know more about me. And my wife and my daughter, and particularly, but my sons also said, Dad, you got to write it down, because nobody knew the whole story. Even my wife didn't know. She knew 80, 90% of it, but not all of it. And so I started to write, and, and I started, the story started to get interesting. And I got a ghostwriter, and she helped me. And then I sent the galleys out to 15 or 20 people, and they said, no, no. You can't just give this to the family. You've got to take this thing public. And, and I was always a non-public, a very private person. Being on Wall Street, I lived under the mantra, live happy, live hidden. Stay out of the press, stay out of television. And I was a strategist and, and a CEO of a firm, and I, I could have gone on television, but I, I was going to go public. But I got so much encouragement to take this story, you know, public, I decided to do it. And my kids, you know... Well, my daughter was a little bit nervous about the fact that there may be somebody in my background would come out and say that I did some things I should have done, but so far, so good. I told her that I'm so old, the skeletons in my closet are all dead. <laughs> oh, my goodness, Ed. It is so good to talk to you, and I know there's a lot of people listening now who are wishing they were related to you because you are quite the effervescent and a positive person. Did you go on to find, with Today and Ancestry.com and everything else, your mom and her relatives? When I was 60 years old on a, on a rainy afternoon, my wife threatened to throw out a suitcase. The only thing that was left of my father was a suitcase in his apartment when he died. And I took it until he died. And 24 years later, 24 years later, it was still sitting in my Greenwich house. And my wife said, we're throwing this away if you don't look at it. And I said, okay, it's raining, I'll look at it. And sure enough, I found a group of letters which were different than the other letters. There were letters between my father and mother and it had the divorce papers in there. So I said, oh my God, she didn't die. So I hired a detective. We found her in St. Louis. Took us about over a month to decide whether we wanted to actually meet her because, you know, here I was. I was a happy guy. I had three children, a wife, a you know, good job, good family. Did I want to, you know, meet this woman who my wife, my father said was terrible. You know, he basically mm. said she was a terrible woman. She didn't want children. You know, blah, blah, blah. That's why she died. And so she died in childbirth and so on. And the whole, he had a whole story on her. But we decided we would we would meet her, and you know she turned out to be a very delightful lady. We actually, when I got to St. Louis to visit with her, I punched the bell and I said, uh, "This is your son, 57 years late." Oh. And we became. And when I walked in, immediately you could tell she was my mother. First of all, no one in St. Louis talks fast, and she <laughs> talked fast. <laughs> and both of us are kind of leaned over. I mean, it would have been great a great study if if we I had taken at some universities. Some, genealogical study. In fact, that, that day in the St. Louis paper, there was some young lady on the front page that just reunited with her mother after 25 years. Here I was reunited with my mother after 57 years. But then I was a private person still, and I didn't want to tell anybody about it. But anyway, we spent 12 years together. She died at 93. She became very close to Barbara's mother, who was in her 90s, and Barbara's aunt, who was also in her 90s. So the three musketeers, the old ladies, had a good time together. And we basically became a family. I mean, it was really fun. And she was a wonderful lady. It turned out 
And another thing that I do, I rhyme when I go to someone's house for a birthday party, and she rhymes even better than I did. So the, the genes were all there. And, of course, what it did for me is filled in my other half. See, I always thought, you know, you think you're only your father, who was very you know, a bright man. He had a lot of talent and so forth, but he was angry and he was impulsive. And he was a feeler and not a thinker. And it turns out her mother is just the opposite. She's a thinker and not a feeler. And that's why she gave me up. She said, I gave you up because my parents didn't want you. And basically she said, maybe I'd made a mistake by divorcing your father, and it might be better for you to be with your father. Turned out not to be the case, but that's what she thought. She was thinking and not feeling when she gave me up because people have criticized her when they read my book for not looking for me, but she felt that I'd be better off with my father. And, you know, it turned out that way, but... It wasn't, you know, it wasn't simple. But, but that, I found her, and we spent 12 years together. I mean, she, she, was, she, always, she used to always say, I'm not really your mother. I said to her, well, you know, you really are. No, she says, you, but make sure you call me every, every Sunday. And if I didn't call her on a Sunday, she would say, long time between drinks of water. So she was, <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, she was a character, and she told jokes. And at her 90th birthday party, she wore high heels and drank martinis. So, you know, it's oh. one of these things. I found by the half, and it really, because there were parts of me I didn't, you know, I didn't recognize, because it was totally different to my father. You know, I, I'm a very, I was, and then I found the other half, and I think that was that's kind of important. That's why I preach to people that they look very strongly at their parents and you know their grandparents and Uncle Harry and Aunt Matilda, because that really, those genes are very important, and it, it directs a lot of things that you do in life. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking to Ed Hey Jim, and the book is called On the Road Less Traveled, An Unlikely Journey from the Orphanage to the Boardroom. And just listening to your talk, it really, it, I know I'm thinking about my family and, and different things, and uh, I feel things sort of coming into alignment. So I just want to thank you for finally getting this story out there. The only question I think that's left is, who's going to play you in the movie? Well, you know, unfortunately, uh, James Bond, who was it? He just died. Oh, he was oh, going to play me in the movie. Right. Uh, yeah, what's his name? Let's think of his name. Um, Sean Connery. Sean Connery, exactly right. Yeah, uh, Sean, Connery. Sean Connery. No, he's going to play me in the movie. But I think maybe uh, uh, Top Gun will play me this time. Oh, uh, Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise, of course. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that would I be I used great. to look a little like Tom Cruise. <laughs> That's fantastic. At least, my, at least my wife thought so anyway. It, it would be a good movie. I mean, they could, obviously, they'll embellish it a little bit, but it's a real American story. And that's, you know, I, I've come to conclusion because I've sold 15,000 copies of the book and I've gotten such positive feedback that I'm going to keep going. And I've also, I've, I've uh, signed for a second book that's uh, going to explode the, the epilogue in my first book. I have this pitch that I make to everybody that your only constant is your inner voice. And you have to build a, a vocabulary for your inner voice. And if you read the epilogue in the book, you'll see that I call the four P's. Find your passions, find your principles, find your partners, and find your plans. And the second book is a fable that goes around those, those four points. I have a lot of fun with that. And, and I'm getting very positive feedback. I got a letter from a woman the other day said my daughter was not going to college. She read your book. She's changed completely. She's going to college. That pays the bills. Education is the key, and it was for you for sure. It's a solution to almost everything, if not everything. Don't you love them? Ed Hajim, H-A-J-I-M. The book is On the Road Less Traveled, An Unlikely Journey from the Orphanage to the Boardroom. Pick up the book, and Ed asks if you'd please give him a good rating on Amazon. That his publicist would love that. And we await his next book, A Fable. He just has the kind of wisdom and the kind of personality I could listen to for a long, long time. 
So although I never thought this would become the norm in my life for Thanksgiving Day, the plan is to take the dogs for a long walk. The plan is to take the dogs for a long walk with my sister and her dogs and my husband and maybe some of my sister's kids too. And then we're grilling burgers. Seems I'm the only one that likes turkey and I can have that anytime. We have the most non-traditional holidays after having grown up with the most traditional holidays. It's definitely a switch from how I thought things should be. And it's definitely unrecognizable from how things used to be, but entirely, perhaps, more authentic and peaceful. Sometimes it's hard to find a new path or change a tradition. But what did Ed say? It's self first and listening to your inner voice and making the best way for yourself that you can. So if you find yourself surrounded by loved ones this holiday season, hooray for you. If you find yourself on your own, know there's a big difference between on your own and alone. Reach out. And you know, I loved so much what Ed said about no matter how rough life is, if you have one person in your life that tells you you're going to do it, if you have one person in your life that tells you you're great, that's all you need. And if you don't have that person, maybe you can be that person for somebody else. Our thought for the day comes from John Wooden, an American basketball coach back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. He said, don't let what you cannot do interfere with what you can do. Shine on. You've been listening to Shine On, the health and happiness show with new episodes every week. It's your time to shine on. Thank you.